Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome back to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. My guest this week is Cindy Otis. Cindy is a former CIA analyst and the author of the book True or False, a CIA analyst's guide to spotting fake news. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. Our conversation this week covers why there's sometimes more to protests than meets the eye, how disinformation feeds on our own biases, and why conspiracy theories can drive marginalisation, discrimination and radicalisation. Cindy, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I, I've enjoyed reading your book and I wanted to start out uh, just asking you to kind of share a story that you tell at the start about your first day working at the CIA. Obviously, you're not going to give me too much detail of what happened after the first 15 minutes or so, but you uh, you mentioned finding an inscription <laughs> on the wall. Can you just talk me through it? Yeah, so... Um you know, your your first time ever going to the, the agency is um, quite a daunting experience, as you can imagine. Um, it's a career that I that I always hoped to have. And so, uh, you know, as a as a grad student, um, getting to to go there for the very first time was kind of felt like a dream, really. Um And so um, I showed up uh, and was meant to. Um, you know, meet uh, office contact and um, walked through the doors. Um, and it, it looks a bit like a museum inside. There's sort of marble floors, white walls, uh, statues everywhere. Um, the sort of f- famous uh, and infamous for other reasons, probably uh, wall of stars of officers who lost their lives uh, in the service of their country. And I was um, waiting for someone I realized, you know, upon showing up that I didn't actually know their name. Um, I There was a, a guard uh, with a gun um, at a desk. And so I just sort of headed over to, to him and I said, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to meet somebody. And he said, you know, do you know who? Do you know the name? I can call somebody. And I, I realized then, oh, gosh, I didn't know who I was meeting, really, which made it feel all the more sort of CIA-like, I guess. Um, and he said, well, why don't you, you know, look around while you're waiting? Um, and and so started taking in some of those those little monuments or, or sort of neat special things that you see uh, when you first go into the lobby. And um, I noticed off to the side as I was wandering around that inscription that you mentioned. 
And um, it's a Bible verse. Um, and it says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And I just sort of sat there for a minute staring up at it and um, not really comprehending at the time what it all meant necessarily, even though I was familiar with the the verse itself. And then my contact did, in fact, show up um, right at that moment. And um, I was pretty awestruck at the whole thing. And, you know, they said that that verse means a lot to us. Um, it's sort of at the, the core of, of what we do every day, and particularly as an analyst, which is um, the field that I was going into. And do you still find those words as resonant in today's world as you did when you when you took the job? Yeah, I mean, you know, it took me a while to to sort of get the get the the depth behind those words, I think, in the job. Um, you know, as I went through analyst training, which is quite a lengthy process, and I sort of, you know, started to really dig into to what that career was all about, uh, being an analyst. Um, it, it meant a lot more to me as the years went on um, than it did in the beginning when I was that awestruck, you know, 23-year-old. And it certainly means a lot to me now. Um, I think we're in such a we're in such a difficult time uh, globally in just, you know, sort of political division, at least in the United States, but certainly in other countries is really at an all time high. There's a lot of just, you know, debate over what is truth and does truth actually exist anymore? Are there things such as facts um, or is it sort of reality is up to everybody's interpretation? We're having a lot of really tough conversations and I'm not sure that we're necessarily making much much progress um, on those conversations. But for me, that, you know, that that scripture, um, that quote just means so much. It's something that I that I really hold to now there. There is truth. You can find it. And, um, you know, it, it makes you free in a way when you when you have. I think there'll be those are encouraging words for lots of people who are part of the conversations that you just referred to. And I think as a podcast host, I'm hopeful that hopefully the conversations somewhere lead to progress. Um, I noticed in the book, I've just come off the back of doing, uh, people who've listened to this series, Government versus the Robots, would have heard Claire Wardle talking about um, why she doesn't use the term fake news or, or tries not to use it. Um, although also recognising it's a really handy shorthand. Did you did you wrestle with whether fake news was the right way to talk about the content of the book or was it always a no-brainer for you? Yeah, no, I, I did wrestle with it. Um, and uh, so Claire is wonderful. I'm one of her biggest fans um, and glad you, you've had her on. And we've talked about it a bit before. Um, so I did wrestle with using the term because it does have this, this connotation um, nowadays. But the fact is, is that um, fake news existed long before people like uh, Donald Trump were using it um, and other modern day political leaders in other countries. Um, it was used quite frequently, um, you know, starting around uh, the late 1800s to describe um, sort of exactly as I define it in, in the book, um, you know, knowingly trying to push false information as uh, true news. And I think, you know, I am a big uh, a big fan of being very clear in terms as we're defining them, making sure that we're using correct terms. It's actually something that CIA analysts spend sometimes days debating single single words or single terms. So I understand the debate. I think it's good to have the debate. I also think that there is uh, a lot of merit to using a term that um, that is commonly used and and bringing it back to its original definition. 
um, not letting others sort of take control of that definition and, and redefine it themselves. Um, so that was sort of uh, my intent was using a term that, that people hear a lot and then saying, okay, that's not actually what it means. Let's level set here. And for you, do fake news and propaganda, are they different or are they one and the same? Um, you know, so so one of my arguments is I do feel like we oftentimes in the disinformation space or the, the people sort of in this community that study things like fake news, propaganda, disinformation, that we do try to too narrowly defined terms, we end up spending a lot of time sort of slicing these um, these sort of worlds and spaces into so many different terms that they're no longer sort of digestible or understandable to um, the average media consumer. And that's, you know, uh, you know, maybe we can talk about this later, but one of my uh, primary motives for for writing this book and for um, you know a lot of the work that I do is trying to get the conversation about what is actually happening outside of the people who study it day in and day out and actually get it to the people who are um, consuming news and are sort of that first front line of of defense against bad information and that's the average media consumer. So I do worry about too narrowly defining particular terms and slicing them into different pieces and saying, well, you know, propaganda is, you know, different from fake news in this particular very small way. Um, I do think there are some differences. Propaganda is something typically that, you know, government might use um, as opposed to fake news is I think um, a more general term where we can, you know, we can use it when we're talking about um, you know, a whole host of organizations, people, governments, et cetera, that might use false information intentionally. And it's, um, for me, as somebody who's worked in communications for a long time and worked in international development, I sympathize with your point on jargon uh, and communicating with the man and woman in the street completely. And I think you're dead right, actually. I think a lot of people who have degrees often have degrees in jargon as much as they have degrees in the specialism <laughs> that they chose to study. It's almost like wearing the... Ba- those those words and those definitions are almost like wearing the battle scars of uh, of showing that you've done your time thinking about the issue. But the... Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. The book is called True or False, a CIA Analyst or Officer's Guide to Spotting Fake News. And it's aimed at young adults. Is that right? It is. Yeah. And was that something that you wanted to do from the off? Absolutely. So for a couple of reasons. Um, one, um, as somebody who was absolutely determined as a young person not to be a reader um, until I read the very first you know, book that really clicked with me and got me addicted. It was a book aimed for young adult readers. And so it turned me into a lifelong reader. And so I know the transformative power of having a book specifically written for your audience. Um, and I've got to ask what the book was now. So it's so funny. I, I always like hesitate to bring up that story because I don't actually remember the name of the of the book itself. I, I remember the plot completely, which was, uh, you know, it was about a, a young girl who had a particular personal experience as a, as a child that I also had had. And I'd never read anything, uh, a story that where my uh, sort of experience had been represented until that book. And I just remember sitting all day on a Saturday reading it and not getting up. Uh, at all to take any breaks because I was just so determined to see, you know, how it played out in part because, you know, I, I felt like maybe it would help me understand how I was going to turn out. Right. 
Um, so I am determined to track down this book because it was, it was quite life changing. But, um, so, you know, the transformative of power, as I mentioned, was one of the motivations. I wanted to write, um, a book specifically for young readers that, you know, I think is accessible for adults as well and the average media consumer, but is particularly, um, written for young readers because they're going through something that, you know, at least at the level and scale, you know, people of, of my generation or older generations didn't have to go through. So when I, when I was a kid, that's when the internet was really becoming a thing that people had in their homes. And, uh, you know, before that we were, you know, if you had a question, you looked it up in the encyclopedia, a hard copy encyclopedia. And, uh, and so we just don't understand the sort of deluge of, of information uh, that that young adults are um, sort of under from the very first day uh, of their lives. Their sort of whole lives are on social media, um, either because their parents sort of put them on social media, um, or you know they get them they get there themselves eventually, and so they need the tools and, and tricks and, and training um, more than I think any other generation has needed them uh, because they just have so much information being flung at them uh, from all corners all day long. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my motivation. Well, having been able to read the book, uh, before it hits the shelves, I can definitely say that it is accessible both to adults and no doubt to young adults. And you, um, you managed to use some, some fun, but informative historical examples in showing that fake news is nothing new. Which of those is your favorite? Oh gosh. Um, there are so many that I love. Um, one would be, uh, I do a, a chapter on um, the evolution of the tobacco industry. And I think, uh, and just sort of how they, they weaponized false information to completely change the, the narrative on the dangers of, you know, smoking. I think it's really applicable to today um, with the pandemic situation that we're going through now and sort of the, the revelation of just how, um, how pervasive false medical and, and science related information is. So I, there was something very, um, I don't know what the word is, but just the process of writing that chapter uh, and, and doing the research uh, to, to put it in that sort of narrative form. I think that was a chapter where I felt like, okay, this, this chapter might make a difference. Um, I'm, of course, I'm hoping all the chapters will, but it was sort of one that was a historical example where I think we're seeing the exact same thing play out uh, sort of today. And um, yeah, I think just just completing it, um, you know, of course, as you're you're writing a book, it's constantly going through revision after revision. And this one actually uh, largely stayed the same from from the very first time I wrote it. And I think yeah, just when I got to the end of it, I was like, I think, I think I got this one right, and I think this might actually help somebody. I, I'm, I'm sure that is the case. I, I'd be very impressed if you managed to contribute anything to the Jack the Ripper mystery. Um, but, <laughs> but, but never say never. Um, and there's all. There's, yeah, there's, no, I'm sure, I'm sure I didn't. But <laughs> there's King Ramsey's in there. There's Marie Antoinette's in there. It's a, it's, it's a really enjoyable mm-hmm. kind of uh, use of history to make a really, as you say, a relevant and contemporary point and that's actually where I wanted to pick up on the next couple of questions that I have is one of the um one of the chapters I was reading talks about conspiracy theory and people essentially building racist conspiracy theories and that's something that's very much a feature of the the alt-right and the and the extreme right in the U.S. today 
presumably that's something that you were cognizant of while you were writing. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I felt like it was an extremely important thing to to bring up multiple times throughout the book. Um, there are a number of historical um, vignettes, I guess I would call them, that tie back over and over again to um, using racism, uh, playing on people's racist uh, beliefs to promote conspiracy theories uh, and disinformation. Absolutely. I, I was very cognizant um, as I was working on this project, um, how uh, applicable it was to what we're seeing today uh, with um, far right groups that are absolutely using um, those same uh, race based fears, um, racism and uh, discriminatory sort of narratives um, to increase their audiences um, for their content to push their narratives um, and, you know, in, in political circles, you know, to make political gains as well. And is, in, is, is, is your sense that those are increasingly considered and sophisticated efforts or is it a case of kind of a massive enthusiasm and the right technological environment just kind of con- unexpectedly contributing to the success of those efforts is it you know i guess what i'm asking is it is it method or madness um that that seems to be supporting the alt-right in the u.s in this yeah that's a good question i mean i would say you know the the people and groups that are using these narratives are at different levels of sophistication so you have some very coordinated efforts that are happening where you can see um, you know, so at the end of the day, I'm a disinformation investigator. So I spend all my time uh, online in forums and on social media platforms hunting uh, for for coordinated efforts to push out false information. So, you know, you'll see groups that are, uh, you know, they have a, a company, even a digital marketing firm or a, um, you know, a nonprofit organization or something like that, where they're extremely coordinated in their use of these narratives. So they'll have you know, multiple web- websites that they're running, multiple um, pages, groups, uh, et cetera, on Facebook, Twitter accounts, Instagram accounts, um, name the platform they've got a presence on there. And they're just constantly pumping out information um, using these these racist conspiracies um, and false information, you know, based on sort of racism about unrest, about the pandemic, about, you know, particular um political officials in the United States that are from marginalized communities, all of it. And so that's a quite a, a coordinated and, and sophisticated effort. They might not just be hiding it is the thing. I think sometimes we talk about disinformation as, you know, it only counts as disinformation if if they're hiding it and lying about sort of who's creating it. And that's not the case at all. So you can have these quite sophisticated efforts where, um, you know, these are these are people who actually have degrees in digital marketing or social media that create uh, just a, an absolute fire hose of, of false information using, you know, racism as a as a as a motivator and a narrative, um, et cetera. And they're just not hiding it necessarily. And I think we're seeing that. I mean, that's been happening for for years and using the the racist, uh, you know, race as a narrative um, has, of course, been happening for for even longer. But, you know, sort of weaponizing social media around those things. We've been seeing that for for years. And I think we're seeing the the impact that that that, that is actually happening, you know, having having today in terms of 
how people talk about, uh, you know, the protests against police violence, the research that is coming out about the number of people who believe in, you know, one or more conspiracy theories about the origin of the pandemic. You know, to me, that's that's the result of of not necessarily disorganized madness, but of, of actually the people who've, who've done a bit of coordinating and planning and organizing around this. And one of the aspects, I guess, the protests around Black Lives Matter in the States and elsewhere seems to have provided a kind of real time opportunity for disinformation protagonists. And I wondered whether your professional experience has kind of shown you the ways in which people are able to use protest as a way of influencing political narrative. Absolutely. Um, So the first thing to say is, you know, the protests are happening at the same time as a global pandemic, at the same time as, you know, in the United States, we're just a couple of months away from a very contentious uh, presidential election. So um, we're sort of in a perfect storm scenario um, in the United States uh, for disinformation. One of, you know, one of the reasons for that is because um, our emotions are at an all-time high right now. In the United States, there's strong emotions of, of fear and also anger, suspicion, etc. And those are exactly the kinds of emotions that people who are pushing out disinformation or using, you know, fake news, those are exactly the emotions that, that they want to play to. In part because, you know, just the way that our minds sort of work um, when we're under extreme amounts of stress and, you know, very sort of um, fight or flight sort of uh, thinking, our our critical thinking skills are, are pretty low. We're just trying to survive, right? We're just trying to keep ourselves safe. We're trying to keep our f- friends and family safe. And so when we see things, um, information, uh, posts on social media that we might otherwise sort of be, you know, sort of question or think, hmm, you know, I don't know who this person is, maybe I won't share it. A lot of that that tendency is gone uh, because, again, we're just trying to survive. So we'll share things we might not have shared before just on the off chance that it helps or, you know, protects us or protects somebody that we love. So there's that going on. You know, disinformation actors, um, th- this is the, the perfect season for them, essentially. And one of the the narratives around um, the political unrest in the United States that has gained traction is this um, this idea that we we see frequently um, about sort of outside agitators um, or uh, you know sort of suspicious strangers that are plotting or behind uh, the thing that we're seeing that we don't like. In this case, you know. Uh, people might see rioting and looting as, you know, a, a negative thing. Um, and to them, it makes sense that maybe there's some nefarious outside agitator, outside force um, that's behind it all. Uh, because in a rational world, that would never happen is sort of the thought, right? Um, so that's been a persistent theme that has has played out um, when protests have gotten violent for, you know, all of time, essentially, is this idea of some, you know, nefarious uh, outsider um, coming in and doing something terrible. But it's also, and I mentioned a, a story in my book about some cases in the last couple of years of um, 
uh, rumors circulating on messaging apps in countries like Mexico and India and elsewhere, where there's, you know, a rumor about um, some some evil strangers that are going to come into your town and steal your children for organ trafficking, sex trafficking, they're going to murder them, etc. All the bad things that you can think of, these strangers are going to do. And it's actually resulted in people who have just been visiting, you know, villages or towns for one reason or another, being attacked by the local population because they're on edge looking for the outside uh, agitators or, or sort of evil strangers. Um, so that's that's what we're seeing in the United States as well with the idea of, you know, quote unquote, Antifa coming on things like buses to, you know, middle of nowhere, middle America to destroy towns um, and, and that sort of thing. And then, of course, the buses never arrive. Uh, the, tra- the towns are fine. But the narrative that there's this sort of outside force uh, coming to take over your town, destroy your property, et cetera, still persists. It's it's funny you should that you should give the answer, and I, I, you'll see why when I ask what was going to be my next question. Um, because in episode one of this series of Government versus the Robots called "This Is Not Propaganda," I talked to Peter Pomerantsev about his time in post-Soviet Russia, and he uh, reflects in one of his books on how the Russian government will kind of organise counter-protests to protests that spring up in order to undermine the legitimacy of the initial protest. And I kind of got to wondering about whether the the move of the, the kind of disinformation networks that exist on, on Facebook or Twitter or elsewhere could be used to galvanise action or protest in physical spaces in the States. So when I saw, I can't remember which state it was, where there were a group of white super, heavily armed white supremacists took over, I think, the state capitol building. And I, I was thinking, well, hang on a minute. Is this organic or is this something that somebody's kind of benefiting from instigating? But am I then just falling into the trap of thinking, well, there's always got to be an outside actor? Or am I right to think that it's a uniquely febrile atmosphere and and people might be able to make trouble from outside the boundaries of the state? Yeah, that's a great question. And does, uh, um, I feel like we probably experience similar things when we, we have those questions, which is, oh gosh, am I getting a little paranoid myself <laughs> being steeped in all of this for so long? Um, so, I mean, one... One thing we know is that, uh, you know, Russia, when it uh, interfered in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, is it did try to instigate protests on both sides of a political issue, real life, you know, in-person physical protests. So we do know that that is um, something they've done. We've seen indications of even uh, domestic groups. Uh, there was some, some some stuff that I was looking into a couple of weeks ago about, you know, a, a gun rights local group in Pennsylvania pushing protests in favor of uh, guns, but also protest on, against sort of police violence uh, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, killing. So they were sort of pushing both sides as well. So it, it does happen. Um, I think with a lot of this, it's about keeping your sense of proportion. Most protests are, are organic. Um, most counter protests. So when a person sees protests happening uh, for an issue with which they don't agree, they come out and they counter protest. Most of that is also organic. 
but absolutely, um, there are groups and countries um, and governments out there that benefit from political chaos in places like the United States or elsewhere. And so it's sort of um, a message that I that I try to push in my book, but certainly in my work every day as well, is that we do have to keep a sense of proportion. It's not all protests. It's not all counter protests where, uh, you know, there might be some outside group uh, that benefits from it and therefore is, is pushing it. But it's something you, you do have to watch out for so that you're not manipulated. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And something that we've uh, kind of skirted around while we've been talking but I think is another area that would be interesting to keep an eye on is the narratives around the coronavirus and COVID. And you write in your book about some of the narratives that emerged when HIV AIDS was was kind of first first emerging and becoming a kind of pandemic in its own right. You know, do you foresee space for the the, the COVID narrative war to grow into in the coming months? Yeah. Um, so when COVID happened, I mean, my, my book had already been written and, and finalized. Uh, and I, I remember thinking, oh gosh, I wish I could just do one more chapter just to start to unravel what we're seeing now with coronavirus related misinformation, but also disinformation. So the parallel with the narratives around HIV and how, um, you know, the Russian government in particular tried to create essentially an AIDS conspiracy uh, to convince the world that the United States had created it as a as a bioweapon in uh, the the basement of Fort Detrick and then deploy it all around the world. Again, they used the uh, plate on on uh, the race issue by trying to convince um, countries in, in Africa and also um, the the black community in the United States that it was an effort to, to kill uh, black people. So, you know, we've seen a lot of that, that playing out 
now as well with coronavirus, where where um, both the the governments of Russia and China are using very overtly their own state run media to push conspiracy theories um, and false information about coronavirus and particularly the origins of coronavirus. Um, so we've seen, you know, websites that we know are Kremlin linked, but also um, very overt uh, Russian government media um, trying to push the idea that it was created by the United States, again, the U.S. military um, as, a, as a weapon. Um, the Chinese government has, has made similar claims through their media. And, you know, I mean, I would say, you know, there are these these very concerted efforts by those two countries um, and others to try to to use disinformation in particular. But I, w- I would also add that the bulk of, of false information that we're seeing on coronavirus is actually misinformation. So, you know, people sharing information that is false, that they don't know is false. That is the vast majority of what's circulating. I feel I should say at a time when I get frustrated by sort of British attitudes of exceptionalism, that I have seen um, ex-security, senior ex-security service staff in the UK happily making illusions uh, that the, the virus could have been manufactured in a lab in China. So it, it's definitely not just, it's not just uh, even Russia or China that are in on the act of casting doubt um, for, for perhaps for political reasons at the moment. Yeah, you're right. As we, uh, as we look forward to the elections in November, you obviously spend, you know, you've said yourself, you spend hours every day kind of rooting around disinformation. And I've seen you've written recently about uh, Facebook groups and the impact that they're having on democratic discourse. What are the things that keep you awake at night the most about the November elections? Yeah, um, a lot. So I don't sleep very well these days. Um, I would say, um, you know, again, sort of we're in a we're in a perfect storm scenario when it comes to um, disinformation and and misinformation. So. Um, I worry about things like um, individuals or groups that would sure love for a certain population or two to stay home on voting day um, to play up, you know, false information about the coronavirus to scare people into staying home. I think, you know, there are these unrest happening. Um, we have coronavirus uh, and I think they're not they're not separate issues when it comes to disinformation. They're sort of um, they can be used sort of against each other. So I anticipate seeing a lot of voter suppression uh, efforts by individuals and groups and governments that, you know, that would love to keep people home uh, on voting day. So that keeps me up a lot um, is just being able to make sure that people are able to exercise their right to vote um, and have their say in their political futures. You know, I worry about all of the the disinformation and misinformation that is already circulating, but will absolutely increase significantly in the coming months aimed at making sure people don't have a voice. Do you think there are any any tactics that aren't widely recognized at the moment that might come out of the woodwork? Or do you think we know pretty well what the tactics are? It's just the scale that makes it hard to, to, to break down. Um, so I would say, I mean, one thing that I always sort of harp on is that it feels like sometimes we're talking about the the threat from 2016 when, you know, everyone was learning that Russia had interfered. Um, we're still sort of talking about that threat over and over again, when really some of the tactics have changed, their sophistication has increased, and there are a whole lot of other players on the scene. So I don't think it's the same old, same old. Um Certainly the the scale of disinformation and misinformation that's circulating on a daily basis is 
I mean, we just, we've never had anything uh, like this scale before, um, thanks to social media um, and technology. But, you know, Russia knows what it did wrong last time. Um, It knows what social media platforms have done to try to find them and find their efforts. And they're they're getting better um, with hiding what they're doing. Um, I think they're also... um, they're using the scale of, of disinformation and misinformation to their advantage. So they don't necessarily need their content to go viral in a way that would make their fake accounts or their, you know, website or um, pages or groups stand out. They simply need to slip into existing uh, narratives and push. So I think that's important to recognize. But I think also there are just so many other countries and groups um, people who are motivated financially from, you know, profiting off of political false information that are on the scene now that weren't necessarily back in 2016. I mean, they, you know, there were people who are financially motivated in 2016 for sure. But I think, you know, more uh, groups and individuals have come to realize as this has gained public attention that you can potentially get your candidate elected and make a lot of money doing it. And is that is that the kind of click? Click ad economy that, that that offers the revenue. Absolutely. So you'll see a lot of you know clickbait kind of content on websites that are you know pushing conspiracy theories or um, you know misleading political information, and then you look at the the infrastructure of the website, and they're just loaded with pay per click ads from you know Google ads and you know a, a bunch of other companies. You'll see often with these websites that they're very much into tracking. So the websites are filled with different trackers to see where you go next so that they can build um, increasingly detailed pictures about who's visiting their websites, what they're interested in, where they go next. And then therefore they can, you know, sort of tool and train um, their own content to appeal uh, to those audiences so that those people will come back over and over again and you'll make more money for it. This is probably a good point for me to start to ask you about how to spot fake news. Just before I ask you about some specifics on that, can you run me through really quickly the different types of bias that we all have, but sometimes don't admit to ourselves? Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of reading to do on this. And and I would say one thing about um, my book is it's a starting place for, for folks. So uh, it's, it treats a lot of different issues, but there's a lot of reading to do uh, beyond this. So I do get at some of them. I don't talk about all the biases, but one of my chapters is specifically focused on the important step of recognizing your own biases as a way of understanding how you filter uh, information and interpret it and, and, and indeed even analyze it. So I talk about cognitive dissonance which is um, sort of the, the discomfort that we we all feel when our personal views or ideas um, don't actually match the facts uh, or evidence that we end up seeing. So you have a belief, you see a piece of information that directly contradicts that belief and and you don't your brain does not know how to, to wrap your mind around it, right? I also talk about negativity bias, which is we tend to, again, sort of going back to the idea of we we're very concerned about protecting ourselves and keeping ourselves sort of alive on a day-to-day basis. It's just an instinct. Um, We tend to seek out negative information um, as a way of protecting ourselves. Automatically, we seek it out. So um, we're more likely to click on a story that's like, hey, the world is ending tomorrow rather than a story that is actually, you know, true and nuanced about maybe climate change, for example. 
And then confirmation bias uh, is another key one, which is we're always looking for more information that will support our pre-existing judgments um, or beliefs. So when we feel that discomfort of, you know, potentially we're being proven wrong, we we automatically start seeking out anything that will will confirm uh, our belief is actually right. Those are just a couple I would mention. Yeah, I think the psychology of misinformation, disinformation is definitely something I'd like to dive into more in upcoming episodes. Um, I'm reasonably confident that most of the people that listen to this podcast are probably all right at analysing analyzing source texts and keeping an eye on not falling foul of some of the more rudimentary uh, disinformation and misinformation that there is online. But increasingly, I think we're all at risk of getting, getting caught out in ways that we don't expect. And I wonder if you could um, take a second to, to paint a picture of one of the more sophisticated ways you think we could fall victim to fake news uh, and how we might be able to spot that. Yeah, I mean, well, first, I would, I guess I would sort of um, push back a little bit, um, just because I think we're in a, we're in a different environment. We're not in the, in the sort of normal environment of information that we're sort of used to from the last couple of years. So I'm in national security circles. I'm in, uh, you know, my friends and colleagues and coworkers are government or former government, et cetera. And I have been in groups or chats or have received text messages with um, uh, false information about coronavirus, about rumors that are circulating. You probably got some version of it where you are of, you know, my friend knows a friend who's in at least here, the Department of Defense, who just got out of a meeting and the meeting revealed this super secret thing, you know, take care of yourselves, protect yourselves, et cetera. That's that's circulated in national security circles in the United States, uh, in part because we actually do know people who are in senior meetings in DOD. And so, you know, if a friend passed it on, we're like, well, you know, it, it could be true. So that was a very rudimentary bit of false information that that actually gained a lot of ground, caused a lot of panic among circles of people who are actually pretty decent at spotting this. So always good to to keep the perspective that, you know, even folks who work in this this space could fall victim to the the sort of easier things to note. But on the more sophisticated side, so, you know, do I think that most people are going to be able to track down, um, you know, the next GRU, uh, you know, Russian Intel effort to run, you know, 100 or 200 fake accounts where they're actually very good at obfuscating their connection and hiding all of their digital breadcrumbs? You know, no, that's not realistic to think that, you know, even even I will have success in, in finding those. But there is a lot of sort of digital breadcrumbs that that people can follow that show different links between websites, Facebook pages, Facebook groups that are um, easier to spot, but but it do take some time. So for example, if you're on a website and you're seeing some some red flags, maybe it's just that they host um, a lot of uh, sensational or divisive um, political content. A lot of it looks like clickbait. Um, and that sort of thing. So you can take a look at, you know, do they point to a Facebook page, a Twitter account, or something like that, you know, a, a, some a social media account that you can go to next. So let's say that they have a linked Facebook page. So you can click on the Facebook page, go to that. There's some transparency um, initiatives that Facebook has added uh, in the last couple of years to help people 
find more information about where their where stuff is coming from and who is behind uh, groups and pages and things like that. So on a page, for example, there would be a box on the right-hand corner that says page transparency tool. You can click on that and see uh, oftentimes that maybe the page has changed its name or um, it might show what country the page creator says it's from. So from there, you might see this page was originally um, uh, I love dogs page. And now it's a, um, Boris Johnson fan club page, or maybe it's never changed its page. But in fact, this politically divisive page is actually run by three people out of India, uh, or Pakistan. Let's say all of that information is, um, totally normal. It's a U.S. political page that is run by, you know, people who live in the United States, well, you can also look to see um, at the kind of content that, that it's posting. It might you might realize as you're going through it that it posts um, links to three different websites over and over and over again. And from there, you've got sort of your next dig- digital breadcrumb to go onto those websites and see. Okay, you know maybe they're linked. Maybe this is more of a coordinated effort to just you know flood the system with um, false information or divisive information. Um, that page also might show, for example, that that you know that the, the page um, has created multiple groups and other pages, and you just end up sort of unpeeling this onion <laughs> uh, until you know. Oftentimes, you'll find you know it's a it's a group. Maybe uh, you know you find out uh, an LLC is running it. Uh, you know, a company is running it, or a particular individual, um, and in fact, they're running fifty different pages or groups all around particular issues. And that's not necessarily something that the average social media would spot right away because there's so much sort of, okay, what's next? How are they linked? Where do I go next? Um, sort of investigation that you have to do to, to unpack it all. But you'll, you know, you'll find that there's something much more coordinated behind that one sort of politically divisive website you started with. I'm going to hazard a guess that during your time in the CIA, you might have had to diplomatically try and tell somebody what they thought was right was actually wrong. What are your top tips for trying to engage with people who have fallen foul of fake news? Yeah. Um, So I wish I had a a perfect, um, this will get them every time. This will convince uh, a person every time. Um, You sort of have to uh, treat each person you're speaking with um, differently based on sort of what you think they're going to respond to. So one sort of general tip I I tend to give is to try to meet people where they are and understand where they're coming from. So, and then to sort of build off of that. So as an example, I would say, you know, if you're talking to somebody about, you know, they're spreading false information that climate change doesn't exist, for example, um, and you're trying to show them, no, in fact, you know, scientists agree, uh, climate change is a thing, we're experiencing it right now, et cetera, they might not necessarily be um, convinced by data. And they're certainly not going to be convinced by a no, you're wrong uh, sort of approach. What they might at least start to be open to is is meeting them where they are. So saying, uh, I happen to know that, or I remember you uh, talking about how your local lake has been increasingly per- polluted by, let's say, tourists who are throwing garbage into the water. So that's uh, made the water worse for you. Um, the clarity is down. It's bad for the fish, et cetera, right? Like we're on the same page, right? This has been bad for your lake. Um, so imagine that that's happening to the air. We're pumping out all of this pollution, 
Um, we're throwing garbage into the ocean. So why wouldn't that same thing that's happened to your lake be occurring to the air around you, the oceans, other water beyond, you know, besides your lake, et cetera. Um, and, you know, why wouldn't there be some effect to that when you're seeing that affect yourself in person? Um, it's not a perfect solution, but it's it does start a conversation. And I think it makes the experience more personal for people. I think when it comes to a lot of science related misinformation out there, you know, people, people aren't scientists, uh, you know, chemistry, things like biology were not my thing in, in high school. So they're relying on their personal experiences. So coronavirus, for example, people might not know anyone with the coronavirus. And so they're more likely to believe that the thing doesn't exist potentially. Um, that's something that I see a lot on social media is, well, I don't know anybody who has coronavirus. So, you know, it doesn't exist. These numbers are false. And so being able to pull things back to personal experiences, I do think is really important in breaking down some of this. Unconsciously in my questions so far, I think I've revealed my own negativity bias. So I just want to ask you before we wrap up, what have been the greatest grounds for uh, optimism that you've seen in efforts to get to grips with the information disorder that we're faced with at the moment? I think there is a lot of reason to be hopeful. Um I think one of the reasons is that there is a lot more public attention on this issue than there ever has been before. My book is all about, you know, hey, this has existed for forever and here's how we can use that to, to you know, have um, sort of more solutions. But I think, you know, there have been a lot of gains in the last couple of years and just sort of increased public awareness. And as a result, I'm hoping that that is going to lead toward more public education um, because as I, as I mentioned sort of before, average media consumers are sort of the first line of defense. So if we can increase the amount of, of public education and training on these issues, I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful because you're going to have that, you know, initial tier of people, um, helping to reduce the amount of false content that is polluting, uh, our, our information, um, systems. So I think that's, that's what I'm clinging to right now. Uh, I think that's the reason to be hopeful. Which is always where I like to end. But Cindy, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed that conversation. I know it's had a lot of very useful tips and insights for everybody listening. So thanks very much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. That's all from Government versus the Robots this time. Next time around, I'll be talking to Alison Goldsworthy, who challenges me on my own biases. But in the meantime, if you've enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review, tell your friends about it, or follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore robots. My thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of the show, and we'll be back in two weeks' time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 